Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to mystory@toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. While you're turning there, uh, just a couple of quick notes. I want to thank those of you uh, that joined us in some days of prayer and fasting last week. Um, it was a really unique time hearing good things from people, powerful in my own life, excited about what it's going to do in the life of the church. And encourage you to pray about two things. Uh, one was our, our nation and in particular the upcoming election. And the more I think about and pray uh, for the upcoming election, the more that passage of scripture in Second Chronicles 20 that we looked at in our last series sure seems to resonate with me when Jehoshaphat says, we don't know what to do but our eyes are on you. Doesn't that make sense? I think that's what we pray in this season. And then also encourage you to pray for the church. If you uh, saw on Facebook or received our emails, you know that one of the things that we asked you to pray for was regarding our former facility on Glendale Avenue in uh, South Toledo and really didn't give a lot of background on that. So for those of you that may be new to the church uh, or even just especially for our members, you may remember three years ago, we approved a lease with an option to purchase uh, with the church that is is currently residing in that building and uh, they have the, the exclusive right up through actually what's now the end of this month, it was three years ago, so the end of this month, that will expire to purchase the building. So we're actually in, uh, in some discussions now, and a little bit of negotiation on that, and we just value your, your, your prayers and uh, your, uh, your believing with us and prayers for Abundant Life Ministries, which is the church that's there. Uh, it's a significant part of uh, both their future as well as ours, and uh, looking to see that building move forward in what God has for it. So if you join us in praying about that, we sure would appreciate it. The one thing that's cool, uh, for those of you that, that prayed and fasted, uh, some during those three days, you don't have to pray anymore, right? <laughs> okay, so keep praying with me. You get the point, right? So, uh, so let's, let's keep praying. First Peter, chapter one. We're starting a new series today. Have you ever found yourself someplace and you just said, I feel like I don't belong here? Anybody? Like you're in a place and you're like, maybe, like I've been in restaurants before where you look at how people are dressed, you look at the menu and you go, oh, this is not the place for me. Or were you with a group of people? And I think this happened to me just about every day in high school where I went, I don't think I fit in here. Right, for some of you, maybe it's an experience you've had in different ways. It could be based on places where you're at based on social status. It could be something economic. It could be something racially motivated. All these different things where you find yourself in a place and you say, it just feels like I don't belong here. This is, this is to be quite honest, one of the real benefits of going on a missions trip or having the opportunity to travel internationally. Because when you do, you are reminded that we live in a pretty big world. And you see yourself in places where you go, okay, I, I kinda, I don't, I don't fit in here. I don't belong here. I remember, I think it was in 2008, actually it was Pastor Bill and I, and we were traveling with Michael McNamee. Do you remember Michael who spoke last week? We actually were with Michael in Albania. And uh, we were going between where we stayed and the project that we were looking at that was gonna end up being the, the one, remember when we talked about the rats last week? <laughs> We'd just been to see the rats. And we were, um, we were going to, to take a stop. It was this old ancient fortress that was at the top of this mountain. And we were in this passenger van and we were winding our way you know, up the, the side here. If you've ever traveled internationally, then maybe you, you kinda know this feeling that you get to a point where you go, I love this, this is awesome, it's cool to see new things, it's neat to meet new people, I really miss home. I just, I miss my bed, I miss my food. Do you know what it is for me so many times, I'm like, I just want my dog. <laughs> love my kids, miss my dog, right? I don't know why, that's true confession. And, um, and, and it was one of those moments, you know? It'd been a great trip, God was directing us, we felt like he was in the middle of this thing, but I'm sitting in this van and I'm going, I just miss home. And I remember we were kind of winding up this, this road and the, the missionary like kind of pulled over because he saw this couple, it was like this touristy place, saw this couple. And he calls out to them and they come over. One of the things you just long for when you're in another country, just speak English to me. Please, just speak English. He calls the couple over, they start speaking English. Here they're missionaries from America. Oh, you got this moment, right? It's cool. So we start talking, I mean, we're leaning kind of out the window, and I said, well, where are you guys from? They said, we're from Ohio, O-H, you know, and it's like, oh. You're all up too late last night, weren't you? Um, 
And then I say, well, what part of Ohio? They go, Northwest Ohio, me too. We're from Toledo. They said, what church? We said Calvary. They said, we've been there. Thousands of miles from home. Somebody who not only speaks my language, they've been where I've been. They know my home. It was a cool feeling. That's what 1 Peter is all about. When Peter writes this letter, he writes it to a church that he refers to as exiles. That's why the, the title for this series is Exile. He's writing to a church that he refers to as exiles because they're so far from their spiritual homes. And he's just like a voice reaching out to them that says, I speak your language. I know where you've been. I know what you're going through. And he writes this letter of wisdom and insight and encouragement to them. That's why I'm so excited and I believe it's so timely for us to be spending the next season of time in the book of 1 Peter. What we're gonna do as a part of this, and Pastor Keith just talked about this, is in part our connect groups all through this next six week series as we go through this series called Exile, we're gonna be looking at in those groups, we'll talk about what we've talked about on Sunday mornings and what we've learned on Sunday mornings and then applying that to our lives. I, I just wanna echo what Pastor Keith said. Same thing happened to us. Like when we got into a connect group, it was, I, I worked here. I had to spend time with you people. But when I got into a connect group, it was transformational for me personally in my life. If you're not in one, and I know there's all kinds of excuses, you can always find reasons to say no. Just listen to see if God's saying yes. And I would encourage you to take that step. It's a really, really, really healthy thing. It's just for six weeks. If you don't like the people, just figure out what service they go to and go to a different one, right? I mean, that's just, okay, that's, the, we're looking out for you here. We got you back. The other thing, the other thing we're gonna, sorry, the other thing we're gonna encourage you to do is this. This, this series, next week, today's just an introduction to 1 Peter, okay? Next week, we're gonna dig into chapter one. Then the following week, we're gonna dig into chapter two. And we're gonna look at a chapter a week for the next five weeks. So your homework then is sometime between now and next Sunday, I'm asking you to read 1 Peter chapter one. Because for some of us, we have a real disciplined or structured Bible reading program. Others of us, we just let the spirit lead it like. We're like, okay, right there, that's where I'm reading today. And God may do that once or twice, but it's, it's not healthy, okay? So what you need to do is find ways where you're working your way through the scripture. So do it with us for these next few weeks. So class, Mr. Gilligan is giving you your homework right now. Next Sunday, your project that's due is you must read 1 Peter chapter one, okay, and if you don't, you're getting your name on the screen, okay? All right, so make sure you read that. Whoa, hey, all right. Make sure you read that. You just can't stop the swagger. First Peter, chapter one. First Peter, chapter one, verse one. Lord, we need your help. Peter, don't encourage it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect. Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. When you're reading scripture, one of the very first things you need to ask yourself is who's writing this? Who is the author? Because who the author is, is really important. Because you have to know who they are to understand what they're saying, what's their background, what is it that they're trying to communicate here. So what's interesting is you, you'll see this as we go through these two verses today. It's structured in the way that ancient letters were written. Ancient letters were written in this way. It would begin with who was writing it, then it would talk about who it was being written to, and then they would give some kind of greeting. That was the structure that they would use in the first century. So it begins with this, who's the author? The author is Peter. And then he describes who he is. And when he does, it's, it's not dramatic. He's not trying to win their affirmation or their respect. He just says this, simply, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He didn't want an elaborate description of who he was. You know why? Because <laughs> they already knew. These were people in the church. They had heard the stories. It's possible that even the, the Gospel of Mark maybe had circulated to them. And if it had, then they had read all about Peter you know who he was? This was Peter. He's one of the 12, one of Jesus' closest friends. He was there for the whole thing. He saw it. In fact, Jesus, Jesus even gave him that name. John chapter one, verse 41, tells the story of how Peter's brother Andrew met Jesus. 
And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, this is transformational, look at this. You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Jesus took one look at him and said, you're you're Simon but I see something in you that's different. So I'm gonna call you something different. I'm not gonna call you Simon. I'm gonna call you Peter, which means rock. Because there's something about you that I'm gonna build my kingdom on. And in that, we see this transformation. Peter goes from fisherman to disciple. He becomes an apostle. He's there at all the key moments of what happens in the story of the Gospels. Then, and they would have known this, Peter was the one who denied Jesus. And then Jesus is the one who restores Peter. We read about this in John chapter 21. Then on the day of Pentecost, the day that the church was born, Peter was the spokesman in Acts chapter two. He became a leader of the early church. In fact, Jesus saw this leadership in him, even going all the way back to Matthew chapter 16. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus says, Peter, what you just said there about me being the Messiah, it just clicked for you and you saw it. You saw what the world needs to hear. And based on your profession, that's gonna be the rock that I'm gonna build my church on. And you, Peter, will be a leader in my church. These people knew that. These people that Peter's writing to. And so it was probably AD 62 or 63, sometime about 30 years after the crucifixion. Peter's in Rome, where the persecution of Christians was really heating up. In fact, within five years, Peter himself will have a mad ruler, the Caesar Nero. Within five years, he'll be blaming the Christians for all kinds of things. And Peter will be crucified. From Rome, Peter writes this letter. And here's what he says, 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. As important as it is to know who the author is of something that you read in the scriptures, it's also really important that you find out who the audience is. Who is it being written to? Because if you know who it's being written to, then it helps you to understand why it's being written, right? If he's writing it to someone for a purpose, it's helpful for you to know who they are, what the purpose is, what they're going through, and if there's any place in scripture where that's true, it's really true in the book of 1 Peter. It's important that you understand this. It gives you perspective to the words. He calls them God's elect, which is a really interesting term that he uses here. Because the word elect, if you're familiar with theological debate, you know that that word elect is a a fireball of a term. It's, It's something that people like to fight about. Let me just tell you this. What it means is that God had picked them, that he called them, that they were important to him. And it's really interesting that Peter, of all people, would use this term. Because Peter is a Jew, And all throughout the Old Testament, when that term elect is used, it's used to speak about the Jewish people, God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. But when he's writing this letter to them, he's he's not writing to Jewish people. He's actually writing mostly to Gentiles. Most of these people weren't Jews. They were what was referred to in the first century as pagans. So when he writes this, it's a really interesting thing. And then he talks about the places where they are. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, places that for the most part we've never heard of. They were in what is today modern day Turkey, kind of in a northern region of what is today Turkey. Peter writes to these people, most likely he's never been to these places, he's probably never met these people, they've never met Peter, but understanding why he writes this book is key to understanding what this book is all about. They were suffering for their faith. See, these were people who had made a decision to follow Jesus in a world that was totally opposed to God and Christianity. 
Even the Jews struggled in this world. This was a world that was filled with many gods, many gods that you would worship and sacrifice to and offer your life up to. And these people had chosen to serve one God and to completely commit their lives to Jesus Christ. When they did that, it pushed them away from the culture. So that meant that they were on the outside and most likely they began to suffer persecution. They suffered for their faith financially, relationally, and physically. And Peter is writing to encourage them in the midst of this challenge. Peter is writing to call them to persevere and live for God in the midst of an ever-increasing secularized culture. Let me read that again. Peter is writing to call them to persevere and live for God in the midst of an ever-increasing secularized culture. Do you know why it might be a good time for us to study the book of 1 Peter? It fits our day and time. Look, Christians in the United States aren't facing outright persecution like believers are in many other parts of the world. But we are quickly finding ourselves more and more on the outside of our culture. Biblical ideas are described as antiquated and bigoted. Righteousness is old fashioned and unusual. Integrity is hard to come by. And any claim to exclusive truth is seen as narrow minded. We're finding ourselves more and more on the outside of our culture. That's why in the last few weeks we've been praying for God to bring an awakening to our nation that people's hearts would turn and that they would come back to God. We ask for that, we pray for that. Scripture shows that, history shows that to us. That's why we appeal to heaven. But the truth is that people's hearts may not change. We might not see an awakening. And the reality is that this, unless the tide turns in some way, I don't see the shift moving a whole lot, do you? It just seems like there's this separation that's happening between the church and between the rest of society, between believers and the rest of our culture. And the reality is, and we have to remember this, that the the church that Peter is writing to was in a culture that was far more separated, far more persecuting than what ours is, and they survived. In fact, the truth is, the, the, the culture that we live in today, where the church has had such a voice and such an influence, is rare throughout history. More often than not, the church has been the minority, not the majority, and yet the church has thrived, has it not? We gotta remember this, that sometimes it's in the most difficult times that the church has its best moments. And what's interesting to see here is that because of their faith, it's possible that these people had lost their jobs, that they'd been economically impacted, that they were alienated from their family. Understand this, the faith they lived out separated them from the culture they lived in. The faith they lived out separated them from the culture they lived in. Now look at that for just a minute, up on the screen. Change, change a couple of those words around and I think you'll see that the faith you live out may separate you from the culture you live in. Have you seen that can be true? Which is why we refer to this series as Egdiled. That's why Peter wrote to exiles. What's what's the definition of an exile? An exile is anyone separated from his or her country or home voluntarily or by force of circumstances. And and the reality is, the the truth is, that uh, some of these folks were probably politically exiled in this part of the world. Some of them were geographically exiled away from their homes, but all of them that he's writing to were spiritually exiled because their home was not on this earth, their actual home was in heaven. Ephesians chapter two, verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Where is our citizenship? It's in God, it's in heaven. Philippians chapter three, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews, when when he's telling us how we can be people of faith, says this, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. He says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, 
for he has prepared a city for them. When we talk about being exiled, here's what we speak of. We are spiritual exiles awaiting our heavenly inheritance. See, this earth is not our home. We live here, we make the most of it, we, we live life to the full, that's what Jesus told us to do, but we have this reality in mind that ultimately our home is in heaven. So here, here's kind of what I see First Peter as, and I'll give you kind of a, an idea of where we're going today. I wanna give to you an exile's guide to life on earth. That's what we see here in this book. And when we get to verse two, he's gonna start to expand for them. You're gonna see Peter take on two roles in this one verse. He's a theologian and he's a pastor. He digs into some really deep things, but he also speaks directly to their hearts. Can I make a a true confession? Oftentimes when I'm reading the Bible and I get to a passage like this, very beginning of a book, you know, I'll read this and you just kind of read it over and you can tell it's just kind of like the niceties, the hey, how you doing, it's me, it's Peter, who are you, you know, this kind of thing. And you can just kind of, just kind of read through it. But this next verse, verse two, is so rich. Look at what he says here, First Peter chapter one, verse two. He's speaking again to these exiles, he says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So let's take the rest of our time. We're gonna unpack verse two and I wanna give to you three keys to living in exile. If you're living your life as an exile here on earth, which followers of Jesus Christ are, we've already seen this, then here's three keys to living in exile. The first one is this. Number one, remember who you are. Number one, remember who you are. And in this passage, it's interesting how he jumps right in and says a couple of things. One, right from the very beginning, he calls them God's elect. And in this world where you are in exile and you remember who you are, don't forget this, you are God's. You belong to God. He is who your identity is in. He is who we put our hope and our trust in. Remember I already told you that these folks were Gentiles? They weren't Jews. They should never have been called elect. And yet Peter calls them that because he wants them to know your heritage is not what matters. What people say about you is not what matters. What you've done in the past does not matter. You are God's. You belong to him. Our identity is not based on our heritage or our history. Who we are is not dependent on our last name or what we look like or what we've done. We belong to God. I know this may be, it's it's a Sunday morning, forgive me, and I know this may be a little bit deep for some of you, but I wanna pull from one of the richest theological works of all time. How many of you have ever seen Toy Story? (laughs) Seen it? Something struck me when I was standing up here at first service. May of 2010, we took our daughter and some of her friends to go see Toy Story 3 for her birthday. We watched it in this room. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) May of 2010, within 30 days, we were trying to buy this building. Had no idea that it wasn't gonna close then. Yeah, somebody's clapping for like Buzz Lightyear. All right, praise God. I don't know if that's good. Okay, if you've you've never seen Toy Story, shame on you. And um, here's, here's the whole concept. It's about the toys that belong to this kid named Andy. And Big picture, all of his toys, at some point in the movie, the key is they've got their name written on them. So Woody, Buzz Lightyear, if you look at the bottom of their shoe, written on the bottom of their shoes is the name. Now here's just an aside. I had a a 10-speed bike that I got when I was in high school. Loved it. It was like this this maroon, burgundy 10-speed bike. I loved it. Do you know what was on it? When I got it, somebody had put my name on it. C-H-A-D. It was right there. Chad. In 1998, it was stolen out of a garage in a townhouse I was renting in South Toledo. If any of you know the whereabouts of my 10-speed bike, I want it back, okay? My name's right on there, Chad. It's mine. What's key about this movie, and it shows up so many times, and how you know you belong, is if Andy writes his name on the bottom of your shoe. For many of us, we go through our life We go through our world and we let our culture define us. We let other people define us. We let our circumstances define us. We let what we think about ourselves, our history, or our past define us. And you know what would be good? It would be good from time to time if you just look at the bottom of your shoe. Do you know whose name is written on you? 
He says it right here. He says, you are God's. You belong to him. He is the one who created you and loves you. And from time to time, it's essential that you go back to this. Not only the fact that you are God's. He starts out here in verse one and says, I'm writing to God's elect. You belong to him. And then in verse two, he says that you are chosen. Man, this blows it up and takes it to a whole nother idea. Not only are you God's, but you are chosen as well. He says, you're chosen through the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's a powerful thing. Whenever I hear that word chosen, do you know what the first thing is that comes to my mind? Gym class. Anybody else? (laughs) You think about that? I do. Because I was never given the spiritual gift of athleticism. The only time I got chosen near the front was when we were playing basketball because I was tall. And they'd say, Gilligan, just stand there and do this. Okay. That was it. Never chosen first. He just didn't want to be chosen last, right? He just didn't want to be chosen last. Because you want to know that you're chosen. Look, if you wonder if your life matters, if you've let the values of the culture or the things that you've heard or seen define who you are, understand this. Peter's writing to these people, and you gotta understand this. These people were suffering. They're saying, is this faith worth it? Do we really wanna do this? Does it matter if we believe? Who really cares? We're losing this, and we're struggling for that, and did you see what happened to so-and-so? And Peter's writing to them, and he's saying, look, hang in there, hold on, because you have God's name written on you, because he chose you, and you matter to him, because before the beginning of time, right, he says, based on the foreknowledge of God, before even the beginning of time, he chose you, and he loves you, because he is your father. Our family's in this really unique season right now where we've never been before. We We have three kids. Our youngest, Evan, is 15, and he's got his uh, temps, and he's learning how to drive. If you didn't pray for me last week, start fasting for me this week, okay? Actually, he's, he's doing great. He's, uh, he's my, my driver, my personal driver. And then our daughter, Carissa, is a freshman at Bowling Green State University, and she's living down there on campus. Is it weird that sometimes this dad just wants to drive around BGSU a little bit? Is that weird? No, good, thanks. She seems to think it is. Um, And then our oldest, Clayton, uh, two weeks ago, he got engaged to be married. And so we've, that's what I said. And so we're like in this, um, yeah, you're welcome. So we're like in this like weird season as a family. We've got all these different kind of things going on. And some days I think Rhonda just kind of looks across the room and goes, I'm gonna be stuck just with him. And that's, you know, (laughs) and then she's thankful for the dog. That's the way it works. (laughs) Here's what's happening inside of me, all right? You got all these things going on. My father's heart, the, the, the heart that I have as a dad, is like going all these different directions with all this stuff that's going on. And in the midst of it, I just wanna give to my kids. Like, I just, I, anything I can do for them, I will do for them. It's just, I just, I just, dads, are, is anybody with me? Like, there's just this thing that's in me that's just like, I just love them, and they're in these different seasons, and I want to do anything I can to give to them. And sometimes my desire to give to them goes beyond my resource to be able to do that, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Like you're in that place. Now understand this, if that's how my father's heart feels, how does his father's heart feel towards you? Amen. The one he's, he's called by his own name. The one that he's chosen. Here's the good news, especially for those of you that are suffering in some way, his resource is never limited. His love for you never runs out. And in a world and a culture that just to be quite honest has a tendency in one way or another and experiences you're facing to beat us up and maybe you came in here today feeling like, do I even belong? Here's some good news for you. Remember who you are. Your father has called you by his name and he's chosen you. That's how you can make it even if you're living in exile. Remember who you are. Here's the second thing that Peter says to them. He says, look, you have been chosen by God your Father. Then he says this to them. Number two, here's a second key if you're gonna live life in exile. Number two, focus on the future. 
Focus on the future. I don't know about you, but when I find myself in a tense situation, my natural reaction is to just try to, 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 to think for the short term. How do I deal with this? Instead of sometimes I need to think for the long term. What's the right decision? What do I need to do here that's gonna make the biggest difference? Peter wants them in the midst of their suffering to think life for the long term. Focus on the future. Watch what he says, go back to verse two. Remember he tells them who they are. You, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. The, the two things that I think are really key as we think about the future is the sanctifying work of the Spirit and obedience to Jesus Christ. First, Peter wants them to focus on the work of the Spirit in their life. To focus on the work of the Spirit. Now we're gonna spend some more time on this as, as we go further in this series, but it's interesting. As he says to them, I want you to focus on the work of the Spirit, he's talking to them about this sanctifying work that the Spirit does in our life. And sanctification is how we become more like God as Jesus' life begins to make itself real in our lives and he helps us to be, sometimes we use the word separated to God or we talk about being more holy. He helps us to make us more like him and it's the Spirit that does that work. When we talk about forgiveness, how when you come to faith in Jesus, Jesus Christ, you experience forgiveness from God, that's because of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. This is why baptism is so important. We're, we're gonna have uh, on our Sunday morning services uh, on November 6th, as a part of what we're doing on Sunday, we're gonna have baptisms that will take place. If you've not yet been baptized in water since you've become a follower of Jesus Christ, let me encourage you, I think this is a critically important thing for you to do. It publicly expresses your faith in him when you obey, it puts you in a place where you're able to receive even more blessings from him into your life, and there's something powerful that's pictured in baptism. When you're baptized, you, you kinda go down into the tank, and there's this symbolism. As you go into the water, you're, you're dirty, you might say, even in a spiritual sense. This is the imagery that's there. In a spiritual sense, you're, you're still covered in your sins. But when you go down in that water, and some of you need to go down in that water for a little bit longer, right? So when you go, you go down in that water, which pictures the, the death and then resurrection of Jesus Christ, you come up out of that water cleansed of your sins. Now this is just an image. What happens though is that when you receive Christ, that's what happens inside of you. That forgiveness comes to you. And it's because of theologically what's referred to as the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Look, if you wanna be baptized, you, you, can, you can jump online to our website, go to the events page, and from there, you can sign up, you can stop by out the information desk today, and you can get a, some information and sign up to be baptized. If you've not been baptized, I would strongly encourage you to do that, because it creates this picture, and we'll talk about this more in the weeks ahead, of that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So Peter says to them, I want you to focus on the work of the Holy Spirit, and then he says to them, I want you to focus on obedience to Jesus to focus on obedience to Jesus. Quick little theological note. Did you see who Peter's talking about here? He talked about God our Father, he talked about the Holy Spirit, and now he's talking about Jesus. All three of those are members of the Trinity. It's interesting, you see that doctrine affirmed all throughout scripture. It's interesting what he says when he says that they've been created for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now that means something to us, and we're like, well yeah, that's cool, I'll, I'll obey. But think of what it meant to the people he was writing to, the exiles who were scattered all throughout that area in the first century. See, in the first century, we've already referenced that that part of the world, all of the known world at that time, was ruled by Rome. And the Roman Empire was ruled typically by one man who was referred to as the Caesar. And the Caesar often viewed himself not just as an emperor, as a king, he viewed himself as a god. And the idea was that people would actually, as a part of their cultic and idolatry, their worship, they would actually worship the Caesar. And one of the things that they would say in that time is that Caesar is Lord. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Because the confession that the Christians were making at that time was not that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. Now you can see why there was a conflict in the culture, right? Now you can see why they were struggling and suffering persecution because they were challenging the very top tier of authority in the empire and saying Caesar may be the ruler but Jesus is my Lord. 
He's the one who's in control. He's the one that I worship. He's the one that I bow down to. Now, I don't know that anybody worships any political figure in our country, but for many of us, this is a big problem because we might say that Jesus is Lord, but we really haven't allowed him to be because we still hold on to our sin. We still hold on to our anxiety. Or we still wanna be the one who's really in control of our lives. And for many of us, the thing that we really need to do to move forward is not just say it, but live it and let Jesus be truly the Lord of our lives. One other quick just kind of side note, and, and I know we've talked about this a lot and you're probably tired of hearing about the election every time you turn around. <laughs> I got an amen, okay, yeah. Um, but in this election season, there's a good reminder here. You gotta remember that Peter's writing to a group of people who do not have a godly man in their White House. In fact, the person who's in charge of their kingdom is the very one who's trying to persecute them and destroy them. And yet later in the letter, we'll watch and see where he actually says that they're supposed to honor and respect that very person who's the one who's trying to do them in. Because he wanted them to understand this, although you live in this kingdom, you don't belong to this kingdom. Although you honor and respect those in this kingdom, your home is not here. No matter the state of the kingdoms of man, our allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And that, I think, is, is pretty important for us to remember right now. Because some of us are probably gonna wake up disappointed on November 8th, or the 9th, or fall asleep on the couch November 8th, I don't know, but some of us are probably gonna wake up disappointed. In fact, I tend to believe all of us will wake up disappointed. <laughs> And even in the midst of that, our allegiance isn't to the kingdoms of man. Our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. That's why the third key I wanna give to you today, number three, is to live the kingdom life. Number three, Peter writes to them and says to them, I want you to live the kingdom life. Here's, here's, that's that's kind of my paraphrase, but look at how he says this. First Peter chapter one, let's go back to verse two. Remember, he says, I I want you to remember who you are, that you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then he says, don't get short-sighted on what you're feeling right now. Realize that this has been through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Then he uses this really weird phrase to us. He says, and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. We don't understand that phrase sprinkled with his blood because it doesn't fit in our culture the same way it did for both the Jewish people, also for those in in pagan um, societies in the first century. We we don't understand it the same way, but here's what I want you to see. If we're talking about kingdom life, when we talk about being sprinkled with his blood, that means we can live life with confidence. Get this, that means you can have life with confidence. Here's what I mean. That idea of sprinkling with blood goes all the way back to the Old Testament. If you remember, Moses gave the law to the people. Exodus chapter 24, verse seven. It says, then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. And they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, and this is blood from a sacrifice that they had offered to God, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So he sprinkles it on the book, he sprinkles it on the people, they had sacrificed an animal so that they could have this covenant between them and God, and in sprinkling the blood, it sounds so weird to us, but what it meant to people then was this, God was giving them his word. He was making them a promise. He was saying, I'll stand by what I've said to you if you'll hold on to me. The author of Hebrews expands this a little bit more for us. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There's life in the blood. That's what scripture says to us. That's why sacrifices were given in the the Old Testament. That's why Jesus had to die and we say he shed his blood on the cross. That's why in communion we talk about how he shed his blood for us because without the shedding of blood, scripture says there's no forgiveness, but with the shedding of blood, 1 John chapter one, verse seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. When we talk about that sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives, how he offers us forgiveness, it only happens because Jesus paid the price for that. We have life because Jesus died and lives again. We have life because Jesus died and lives again. Which for some of you is, yeah, Chad, I know that. And for some of you it's, yeah, Chad, I've heard that. Here's what I'm concerned about. I'm I'm concerned that some of us can, can come to church, a church, maybe even this church, and sit here every, every week or hear things over and over again and never really get that and never really understand this part because we can have a tendency sometimes when we talk about this, it's kind of weird in our culture or when we read this, we kind of scoop past it or we sing a song about the blood and we're like, that's weird, but I'm glad I'm singing something different. I mean, we think about, because, because we don't really know how to understand this. See, Jesus died on the cross and he shed his blood The reality was without that blood being shed, there'd be no forgiveness for us because life is in the blood. If I take the blood out of this body, what's gonna happen to this body? It's gonna die. It's not gonna live. And if your blood's not healthy, then something has to happen. Look, inside of each one of us is sin. We've rebelled against God. That separated us from him. That's in our blood. And we can't do anything on our own to change it. Scripture makes that very clear. That's why Jesus had to die. He had to shed his blood for us so that we could know life. This isn't God being barbaric. This is him showing his grace and his mercy to us. Offering him very self for us. And my fear is that some of us will go through life hearing these stories and then never putting them at work in our lives and truly realizing I'm the one who sinned. I'm the one who's far from God. Unless I receive that grace, unless I receive that forgiveness, unless I allow the fact that he died and shed his blood to change my life, then I truly don't know him. There's a lot of us who know the story and we know church, but we might not know Jesus. And it's critical that we let his love change our lives. That's why Peter uses this term. He says to be sprinkled with his blood This isn't some kind of gross ritual. This is the most precious thing that ever happened to humanity, that Jesus gave his life. So I I don't want you to get your hopes up. We're not quite done yet. But would you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment? Because there very may well be someone that's sitting in this room or an auditorium too or I'm very aware there may be somebody who's either online or on television who's, who's watching this right now. And what you know in your heart is that things are not right between you and God. I mean, you know that separation. You might not be able to define it, but you know you don't have hope and you don't have a purpose and you certainly don't feel peace. And when you come right down to it, you're at a place where you would say, God, I can't do this on my own anymore. And God would say, yeah, I know that. I've just been waiting for you to say it. Because my one and only son shed his blood on the cross for you because I loved you so much that I want to call you by my name and I want to give you forgiveness. And if there's anybody in this room and and you would just say, I need that forgiveness. I need Jesus to be the Lord and the savior of my life, and to live my life completely for him. I'm gonna ask you, whether you're in this room or you're watching this somewhere, would you just raise your hand right where you are? You say, Jesus, I need you to be my Lord and my savior. Yeah, thanks, man. A lot of hands up. Anybody else? Jesus, I need you to be my Lord and my savior in my life. I can't do it on my own. God, what I need is you. If you raised your hand, or if you know that he is your savior, would you pray this prayer with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus, for sending your son 
to die for my sin. I ask today that you'd forgive my sin, that you'd change my life. I give myself to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, look, if you prayed that prayer, especially for the first time, I wanna invite you to stop by our Connection Center at the end of the service. We have a Bible we wanna give to you, wanna talk to you about what it means to know Jesus and to follow him. But before we wrap up, I wanna just share one more quick thing that I think is really important in this passage. Because before Peter wraps up this introduction, he like shifts. He goes from theologian to pastor. He'd given them all these theological terms. He talks about sanctification, and he talks about sprinkling with blood. He talks about obedience and foreknowledge, all these, these theological things. And then he just kind of stops. In fact, in some Bibles, it starts a new paragraph. And it's like Peter takes a quick breath. And he thinks about who he's writing to. He thinks about the fact that they're suffering, and they're struggling, and that they're having a hard time. He knows that some of them are wondering if it's even worth it living for Jesus. And then he writes something to them. You know, missions was great, but I haven't been up here doing this in two weeks. I was kinda having the shakes over there last Sunday. (laughs) Because I've felt for the last two weeks that God just, I don't know, that some of you are just in this place where I talk about being in exile and feeling like you just don't belong or that you can't handle the life that you're living right now, that you needed just a word of encouragement. So Peter says to the people that he's writing to, he says to them, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace. Life in the kingdom means life with grace. Grace means that you get what you don't deserve and you don't get what you do deserve. Anybody ever been there? So thankful for God's grace. But it doesn't stop with grace. He says grace and peace. Life in the kingdom is life with grace. Life in the kingdom is life with peace. Peace is more of a, of a Jewish idea. Where grace is that Greek idea, peace is more of a Jewish idea. It comes from the Jewish word shalom, which means that everything is right in your person and with God. Grace and peace, they're undeserved spiritual blessings that God pours out on those who he loves. Probably about seven or eight years ago, I was uh, standing, I think it was on a Wednesday night, like right after church, I was standing in um, the, the atrium of the building over on Glendale, and um, it was kind of right outside the sanctuary, and this lady came up to me, and she started telling me about what she was going through. It was, it was bad. Family was a mess. And then she had gotten a diagnosis from her doctor, and it just was not good news. And she asked me, the great godly man of strength and valor (laughs) to pray for her. And I stood there and I thought to myself, I don't know what to say. You got bad news, lady. (laughs) And even if I pray for you, even if God miraculously intervenes on your behalf, it's gonna get worse before it gets better. She was in a bad place. Previous to that, I'd been reading um, First and Second Peter. I was reading from an older edition of the New Living Translation. Peter starts pretty much in the same way both of these letters, First Peter and Second Peter. And there was a phrase in that that just kind of jumped out to me. I had just read it that morning. So I'm standing there with her and I did not know how to pray for her. These words came to my mind. First Peter chapter one, verse two from the New Living Translation. God the Father chose you long ago and the Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed Jesus Christ and are cleansed by his blood. May you have more and more, watch this, of God's special favor and wonderful peace. You ever heard those words before? For some of you, it works like an alarm clock. (laughs) Sermon's over, time to wake up. (laughs) I didn't know what to pray for her. 
but I knew what God had for her. His special favor. You know what that is? That's grace. It's God giving you his favor. It's not saying things won't be difficult. In fact, 1 Peter tells us, we'll see this as we go, you, you may have to suffer, but God's there. And he knows what's on the other side of it, and what's on the other side of it is so much better than what you're going through right now. So he gives you his special favor for your special circumstance because you're special to him. And he doesn't give you mediocre peace. He doesn't give you random run-of-the-mill peace. You know what he gives to you? He gives to you wonderful peace. And I realized as your pastor, if there was anything that I could pray for you, whatever the situation was, is that God would bring that to your life, whether you're thriving or struggling or suffering, that God would give to you his special favor and his wonderful peace. So would you stand with me, just kind of all throughout this room, and here's the question that I'm going to ask you. Just we want to wrap up. I want to pray for you. If you're in this room today, and maybe you feel like an exile, but you would just say, God, what I need from you is to pour out in my life your special favor and your wonderful peace. Would you just kind of open up your arms in a posture to receive from him? Father, I need that from you. Lord, in a culture that's separating itself from you, I need to know I belong to you. And Lord, when I'm tempted to make decisions based on temptation or challenges or struggles that are for the short time, I focus on the future and my obedience that Jesus Christ is Lord. You are the one who died and gave your life for me. And in the midst of where I find myself, God, do you know what I need from you? I need your grace and I need your peace. Father, I pray for this church today. Lord, you know the one that's struggling. Lord, you know the one that's questioning. Lord, you know the one that's up against circumstances that they never asked for, that are dealing with no-win situations, that are struggling to figure out the right way to go. God, would you give to them grace? Father, we pray that you'd pour out on them your special favor in their life. Lord, and you know the one here that's racked by anxiety, that's uncertain about the future. Father, our whole nation finds ourselves in a place that, once again, we, we don't know what the next four years will hold. But we know that you hold the future. So we put our hope in you. And Lord, we ask for your wonderful peace. Lord, thanks for a reminder today from your word that even though we may feel at times like we live like exiles in a world far from home, that we can thrive here because you pour out on us. Lord, as we go from here today, would you pour out on us in abundance your special favor and your wonderful peace. In Jesus' name, amen.